I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Tick tock. No one's watching yet because we just went live and we only have a 10 second intro. So I, I hate saying something immediately. That's what the deep, deep dive statisticians tell us. Yeah. It's the analytics, still, man. You got to follow the analytics. We still have a goose egg there. So, but I cut all this out for the podcast feed, so they'll never know. Spoiler alert. No, no, I don't. Just talk. Peace and love, everyone. It's your man, Manny Faces, the host and co-producer and editor and love maker of Newsbeat Podcast, uh, the world's best sounding social justice journalism podcast where we cover the issues. We mix them with music. We introduce uh, original lyrical contributions from incredibly intelligent, brilliant uh, bombastic, compelling hip-hop artists who drop lyrics in the middle of a news podcast, which is crazy, but we've won awards for it, so how crazy is it? It's called the Newsbeat Podcast, and we are here delivering you the weekly edition of our offshoot, our spinoff, as it were, this week in social justice. Uh, again, Manny Faces, I am joined, as always, by my incredibly uh, capable and competent colleagues little alliteration there for you. Rashad Mian, the managing editor of Newsbeat and This Week in Social Justice, and Chris Jaworski, the editor-in-chief. Gentlemen, what's up? It's a big title. It's a big title. I mean, this intro was very poetic this time around. I mean, this was really (laughs) great. Out of nowhere, this thing is... Is either something something in his glass, or I don't know what else is going on. There is something in my glass. I will tell you that. Shout uh, right out of the gate, Steve Ortiz, my man, my mellow, up in the Bronx, where the people are fresh. Uh, 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 Old friend, a good friend, uh, checking us out. Uh, For those of you checking us out on the video tip, uh, we are actually a podcast. Newsbeat. Once again, uh, you can find us on all your podcast networks wherever you find delicious podcasts. Uh, social justice journalism covering the hard hitting tactics. Uh, covering the hard hitting. Well, we do cover the hard hitting tactics. <laughs> Some of them are very hard hitting. Uh, but um, doing it so in a way that's informative yet entertaining, yet heartbreaking, compelling, yet inspiring. Uh, because we like to make sure that we focus on some. Uh, solutions, people who are changing the game, not just reporting on the game. You can watch the news and see people over and over reiterating all the horrible facts. We will touch on the facts, but also give you some solutions and point to the many wonderful people that are on the ground doing the work. But to extend that mission, we've de- we've been rocking this weekly live stream video cast this week in social justice, wherever you watch videos. So on YouTube, mm-hmm. on Facebook, and on Twitch, uh, usnewsbeat.com slash watch for the links, the recent episode, and more information about us and what we do. <sighs> My backdrop is purple, uh, throwing up some love for the mighty prince uh, who left us uh, five years was it five years ago today. Already? Uh, wow. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, and I'm also wearing uh, a shirt that uh, viewers can see. Shouts to the mighty Vice Versus. Vice versus an incredible, uh, talented man from New York City area, uh, one of the co-heads uh, of uh, the end of the week performance mm-hmm. series. We're hip hop at the core of this show, and we shout out our fallen brethren. Uh, Vice versus just uh, one year uh, this past uh, this past week, 
Legacy Day, end of the week, a great foundation for independent artistry in New York City uh, dedicated their Legacy Day, gave out $1,000 grants to four uh, upcoming artists uh, in the uh, in the music scene to help further their art, their independent artistry, all in the name of uh, Vice Versus. So I salute uh, them for that. Gentlemen, this week in social justice, been a slow week, no? Not much going on. I don't know. I feel like everything about. hits us on a Wednesday. Everything comes together on a Wednesday. We're scrambling to do a show. It is actually kind of not slow, but we have everything nicely placed in in our little, yeah. you know. And then Tuesday hits, and it's like, oh, there's a verdict in this little trial uh, that everyone's paying attention to. Uh, we will talk about that little trial uh, today. Um, we try to do things on this show a little bit differently than what you might see on cable TV. Obviously, we look really good, but we're a little bit all over the well, I'm a little bit all over the place. Uh, but we're going to give you some new angles and new information that you might not have been able to pick up on because the cable news, Rashad, as you uh, like to say, the lamestream media. <laughs> um, I mean, look, he's got to be honest. I mean, I, most of the time I turn it on, I'm just yelling at the TV. Right. What do you want me well, to do? Here, you can yell, and we will put your comments up uh, on the That's stage. True. So please, wherever you're uh, listening, uh, please feel free to add your comments. In fact, this show is actually a little bit more so than that. We usually have two guests. We have one incredible guest today. Uh, matter of fact, let me, let, let's me let go there. But that's the second half of the show. The first half, we do want to give some space to talk about this monumental situation. Uh, so uh, do stay tuned for the rest of the show. We will be having a great guest. Who's teeing her up? Let them know who we got coming. Yeah, we got uh, Victoria Law. So um, if you join us on our pregame Instagram Live, which we're apparently going to be doing weekly now, um, I mentioned that we're going to be talking to one of the preeminent uh, journalists when it comes to mass incarceration, covering mass incarceration, uh, the criminal justice system. And she's out with a new book called Prisons Make Us Safer. And what? she's not being serious about that. Uh-oh. And 20 other myths about mass incarceration. And it's we, we booked her last week, and I think she is the perfect person to have on to, uh, you know, in the wake of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial for murdering George Floyd. There you go. Uh, we'll give incredible context and perspective. Uh, her work is incredible. Uh, we've had her on one of the episodes of Newsbeat. It's it's going to be eye-opening, and I urge you to stick around for that. Uh, this is the, we, we haven't done this in a couple of episodes, but I want to do this and bring this back while we talk about the situation. We're going to get into our Newsbeat bites also, which are little snippets of quickies. Uh, that uh, bring you some things that, again, you might not have noticed because of all the attention on the Chauvin trial, uh, but that are related in a way. Uh, well, a couple of them anyway. Uh, but for now, please, while you're watching us, we will take your comments and your uh, perspectives, put them on a the screen if you'd like. We want to talk to you. We want to find out what you think, what you want to get off your chest, give you the space. You might not want to say anything on the topic. I understand that as well. We're trying to figure out a way to make this show more of the people, by the people, for the people, not just us being talking heads. It's a two-way conversation. Yeah. Would love to know your thoughts. We're going to get into it. This question of the day is this, and you know what I'm talking about, is this justice? There's a lot of opinions about this. Please share your general thoughts uh, about today in the com. That doesn't make any sense. Who wrote this? Please share I your general thoughts. you wrote that, yeah. <laughs> I am firing <laughs> Uh, I love the the, bottom, the, top, the the top of the hour mishaps seems to be just I don't know who wrote you usually it. get your usually find your groove around the eight seventeen mark 
the point is leave your comments about the question of the day in the comments section of wherever you're watching us uh, live. Uh, is this justice? And when we'll talk about it, we'll give our two cents, even though I don't know if my two cents is that important. Uh, I think, it is. <coughs> but I think we have two cents uh, to share and we want to hear yours. So is I'm going to leave it up. You know what? Yeah. Leave it up. Um, in the meantime, in between time, let us deliver our news beat bites. So again, these are quick snippets of information, uh, stories that have come out that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, and uh, we're going to start with you tonight, Chris. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, we're going to we're going to delve deep into uh, the Shogun conviction and, and uh, we have our guest and uh, tons of other stuff we'll discuss tonight. But um, this segment just sort of highlights these things that get buried um, away from the headlines. And so you guys know I like to to delve into history. I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, Harriet Tubman's father's home uh, was recently discovered. And, um, you know, Harriet Tubman, obviously the abolitionist, um, an icon of courage uh, around the globe uh, for leading, you know, enslaved people uh, north. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they uh, we had a debate about archaeologists earlier. Manny, um, but there it is. And um, Ar archaeologists actually uh, are actually, I think archaeologists and I think dinosaurs, but I understand. Yeah, there's also paleontologists. Yep. Yes, the paleo I was about to correct myself. Paleontologists. I think of uh, ancient cities and things like that, but this is part of uh, history. And I actually think we've talked about a few times the archaeology of social justice. It's not the first time something like this has come up. So I, I, I love the topic, I love the, the story. Yeah, it's just, you know, um, the whole there's a whole trail that you could go on in Maryland uh, that takes you to some of these safe houses in the Underground Railroad. And what's interesting about this is this is sort of a lesser known period in Harriet Tubman's life. She's uh, a teenager at this point, uh, living in this cabin with her father and her mother and her siblings. And, you know, the search for this had started think a year or two ago and it got delayed because of COVID. And just recently uh, an archeologist found these, this coin there that dates to 1808 and they kept wow. uh, digging. There's over a thousand uh, sort of uh, presumed sites that they thought, and they were just started digging. And then they found what, what seems to be the, the old, uh, the cabin. So it's going to eventually be added to that historical trail and uh, get protection. Uh, by the parks department that's dope and you know yeah. it just speaks to again this sort of lesser known chapter in such uh, a critical part of this country's history and specifically mm -hmm. uh the story of enslaved folks absolutely good story and uh yeah these things get buried <laughs> see what i did there <laughs> all right hallowed land we're talking about all right uh moving along uh did i have that on the screen i lost my screen so moving along, uh, I, I thought that this was interesting. Uh, when we when we look at the Chauvin trial, we look at George Floyd's uh, murder, uh, and we can say that now legally, which is uh, which is no no not insignificant. Uh, one of the things that we have always talked about, and we'll talk about this in a second, was the the fact that journalists on the ground, uh, protesters, uh, folks that have helped bring these issues to light are often targeted by the government, certainly in the last four years, 
by the federal on a federal level, but very often at local levels uh, to impede the ability to get the truth out. Uh, we look at Chauvin, George Floyd. What would have happened if that young lady hadn't been filming this? Without a video, there's no there's no trial, there's no conviction. I, I, I they, they would have. Matter of fact, I want to talk later about what they actually said happened before the video proved what they said happened didn't happen. Uh, right. The point is, there's this larger narrative about jurisdictions, law enforcement, governments, agencies trying to squash uh, truth telling. It's been happening for a long time. It's been happening in some cases worse in the in the past four years, but it's still happening. Uh, and this has been happening in Minneapolis uh, surrounding the protests around this particular trial. We've seen uh, Unicorn Riot, who's a organi news organization that's often on the streets and, and really <laughs> in the middle of it all, uh, talk about this, give some other disturbing images and imagery about what reporters and journalists have to go through to cover these protests that are not always as violent as they're portrayed to be, but out there. Uh, and this is an important thing that we have to focus on because now, as we see that the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota is now under a federal investigation in, in Minneapolis, the police department, the policing by Merrick Garland, uh, by the government, the federal government launching this investigation. I thought it was very key that one of the things they specifically said they were going after uh, to investigate was the treatment of protesters. And I would imagine journalists, too, uh, as part of the federal investigation. It's a very important thing. It happens a lot. I don't think we really realize how much it happens. Uh, and they're out there looking at it. So I wanted to use that as my news bite to bring attention to the journalists. Uh, as we know, we were just talking before the show when we were covering Occupy Wall Street out there in the street. And they were like, and we were like, should we keep covering this or should we get arrested? Like, what what do we do here? Because we know that we're going to get arrested for being journalists if we cross a certain line. Uh, and so that's a big thing that's happening. And I, I do appreciate I know everything at this point is, well, it's nice, but let's see what happens. Uh, but I do appreciate that they're opening an investigation against the Minneapolis policing policies. And that they're including specifically a look at how they treat protesters. And Rashad, you have something uh, to add on to that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just want to mention really quick, I just wonder how much of the rhetoric that came out of the last administration helped sort of fueled some of this conduct. Because even yeah. though we've seen journalists being arrested uh, before during protests, I think this is unique in that we've never really seen them being outright attacked um, like, they, right. like they were during these protests. Um, so speaking of protests and sort of Lafayette Plaza, you know, uh, yep. during that whole, you know, thing in, in DC last year. So that's where it, yep. that's like sort of where the line was crossed, where you could directly put your hands and tear gas and shields and kick and whatever journalists and get away with it. And that's dangerous. on camera too. Cause that was all caught yeah. as well. 100%. Yeah. And I just want to, and I just want to mention real quick, you know, um, we've, we've covered uh, some of the stuff we've covered the annual report, um, that sort of ranks press freedoms. And this speaks to the dangers of just reporting the truth, the dangers that uh, journalists and reporters uh, from all different genres um, face every single time they're going out there. Um, sometimes they're killed. Yeah. You know, sometimes they're as, as that. And I, you know, uh, suggest everyone watch that, that uh, unicorn riot video with yeah. the link that we just shared. Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, and again, uh, I, I said this. I'm gonna. I may take the joke that you were gonna say, but as with everything else in America, it's worse in Florida. Isn't it? It always is. I mean, this is incredible. So you, um, this week, um, uh, you may have heard about this because I think the I think the national media really caught on to this. Um, but uh, Florida's governor Ron DeSantis, um, aka Mini Trump, um, signed into law the what experts are calling the toughest anti-protest law in the entire nation. And this is an issue, like you guys have said, that we also covered a couple of years ago. And uh, they, over the last like uh, four or five years, especially with the um, pipeline protests that happened um, on indigenous land and, and for environmental rights, there um, has been a wave of um, suits across the country to try to stem protests. And this Florida one um, sort of puts, it, it's sort of like an anti-protest bill on steroids. Um, so they're basically trying to chill um, your, your first amendment rights and, um, it, it, one aspect of the bill I find horrifying. And even if you're arrested during a protest and it doesn't even um, mention if you're acting violently or doing something inappropriate, if you're arresting during a protest, you don't have, you aren't able to post bail until your first um, uh, court appearance, which is astonishing, especially in this country. Um, and, and also this is more than just an anti-protest bill. Um, so the uh, um, quoting from uh, the NPR but they're saying that um, along with the these measures, that if a municipality wants to p- uh, pass police reform, they basically have to run it through the governor's office. So it's just another thing like <laughs> I just love from, from conservatives that are like, you know, don't tread on me. Um, they, they don't want right. the federal government to do anything uh, uh, to get involved in their in their state politics. But these uh, the, the state governor wants to get involved in local municipal politics and try to blunt police reform. So that's cool. And then you also have uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, I think it was during a press conference where he said, if you riot, if you loot, if you harm others, particularly if you harm a law enforcement officer during one of these violent assemblies, you're going to jail. Um, And again, it's also interesting coming from a Republican who supports Donald Mm -hmm. Trump, who runs on his platform. And uh, it was Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol uh, during uh, one of the most notorious riots in u.s history so this is all incredible um and just the last thing i can add before you guys jump in um, and this is also part of the framing from the media that just gets me so angry and it was coming up again yesterday because for some reason they always have to mention it when they have cameras on people who are just like standing in the street like oh wow look at all these peaceful protesters right Mm -hmm. there was a report that came out last september that found that the Black Lives Matter protests stemming from the uh, killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others were was overwhelmingly peaceful. But um, but the media sort of just like scroll glosses over this, and they don't take into account all the hundreds and thousands of other demonstrations and assemblies that happen that they don't put on camera. And what makes it worse is you have people, some of them the pre- the current president of the United States who insists on reminding us and reminding everyone that you shouldn't be unpeacefully protesting as if people were going to necessarily do that anyway. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think, um, Biden said that, uh, last week after the Dante Wright killing and before he even mentioned anything about Dante Wright, he was, you know, condemning people for looting and things like that. Um, and just like this, the idea of, you know, um, you know, cities just like, boarding up like entire blocks and blocks. It's like you're sort of egging, not really egging people on, but you're, you're sort of dehumanizing 
your own residents because you don't trust them enough to, pe right. to just to assemble and protest and have their voices heard. You right. expect the worst out of the people that you represent. Right. Knowing even though the that very often, as we've seen proven, uh, some of the ones who are actually doing some of the more violent protesting, quote unquote, are actually not the civilians, not the protesters themselves. It's sort of this other shadowy folks coming in. Uh, I will say this. And, I, and I, I'm going to jump ahead to something that I did. I, I actually tweeted this the other day. If you're worried about protesting and rioting and looting and burning and, and people getting so upset that they can't, you know, hold back any longer, which we've covered and which we've said, we don't always condone, but we understand, in the words of Chris Rock, no justice, no peace. Like, that means something. And when you see people boiled over and, and the riot is the voice of the unheard, Donald Martin Luther King Jr., but justice, peace. If you just give justice, if you, or in this case, again, the question of the day is justice. There's a, uh, it's a semantics, whether it's accountability, whether it's just a taste of justice, whether, you know what I mean? I get all that. But the, in the legal sense, the Floyd family felt, because you've heard them say it, that what they got yesterday was justice legally in the legal sense of this case. And what you had when you got justice, was peace. It's really not that hard an equation to me. But yeah, I mean, but these um these governors across um the country, they, they you know, when they see people assembling, um protesting, getting on the road and marching, um they know that these people are fighting against let's be honest, uh, a, a country that is steeped in white supremacy. And right. so, you know, these people are fighting back against that. And white supremacy has shown to be um, stubbornly resilient in this country. And um, it's not something that they're just going to bend over backwards and allow people to fight against. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, that was our news beat news bites. Uh, again, Grover Box, uh, who I happen to know is government name, uh, says, I don't know if it's justice, but I think we needed a guilty verdict to finally show that police are not above the law. And I agree with that sentiment 100%. Of course, I think we all do. Um, we're, said you, uh, we're, we're kind of freestyling until the guest comes in about 10 minutes. Uh, we do want to talk about, uh, obviously, the aftermath of this and continue to take your, uh, your comments. We're said the, the, the one thing that I hear on the news today a lot, and I think this is a fair concern, I think a lot of people are talking about, and we've talked about it, Rashad, Chris, maybe both you could chime in, the idea that, this may placate some people. This may uh, make give the false impression that there has been change. People look at this and say, oh, look, change has come. Well, cool. all right, then. Well, the, I will go back to not caring because I'm going to, you know, look what happened. We're good now. Yeah, or, or hey, look at you, protester. Didn't you get what you want? So why are you still on the street? Right, exactly, yes. Meanwhile, not to say that, we know the full facts of the case, uh, but um, my, uh, Michaela, I'm not sure the name. I apologize. Michaela Bryant, uh, young 16-year-old girl, was shot and killed by police pretty much as they were reading the verdict. Whether that was, uh, you know, as police would say, a justified situation or not, I think you can diffuse a situation with a little, not a little, a young girl 
with a knife in a way that doesn't involve shooting her four times till she's dead. That being said, it's it's not this is not the end. This is the beginning. You'd agree? Yeah, I, this is just a step forward. I mean, you know, period. I mean, the, the Floyd family themselves said, you know, they call it a quote victory for many, but the fight for justice is not over. Um, you know, and the fact that it took, uh, you know, a world uprising, really, after watching in real time, you know, in real time streamed uh, virally, uh, someone being murdered like that. And it took all of these, all of these, these sort of this sort of perfect storm. And there was still hope, you know, that and, and trepidation that maybe he wouldn't get convicted. Yes. You know? um, yes. You know that just speaks volumes to how much further we have to go, you know? And as you said, that recent slaying, I mean, how many slayings, you know, just in the past two weeks, you know, right. it's just, it's, it's, it's. Uh, ju justice would come when this didn't happen in the first place. And we're still seeing it happen in the first place. So overall justice to answer the question of the day, you know, myself or ourselves, uh, this is what justice in the legal sense may look like. Right. Right. In you know, in the legal sense, sure, the family says this is justice. Uh, but in the overall sense, this is what justice looks like. Right. Maybe. But is yeah, it what I mean, this is something this is something that I think, like, you know, I was sort of grappling with this morning when we were prepping for the show and I hit you guys up and I'm like, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea of justice. And I obviously understand where the family is coming from and where plenty of other people millions across this country who have seen police officers either not get indicted or um, right. not get convicted in a court right. of law. And, you know, it, it, I, I actually took the time because I think that the idea of justice is such a, is a notion that is sort of ingrained in us from the beginning as, as just as Americans. And it's the in institutions that sort of amplify that message that justice has to be something that's um, sort of provided by the government, um, provided by legal institutions. And there's just something about that that sort of bothers me. And yeah. I looked it up and, and the true definition, the first thing that comes up is justice is peace and justice is respect. And that's something that you just hit on a few moments ago that this should have never happened. So when right. I think of justice, I think of George Floyd and I think of, you know, what Derek Chauvin did to him. And that was not respect. And obviously that wasn't peace. And society failed George Floyd, just like it's failed so many others. And so many people who are just living, I'm not, you know, not even the people who were right. felt by police, but just so many people in this country right now um, who don't have that essence of justice in their lives. I want to give you three things, maybe four. I'm not, I didn't quite count uh, that we noted from our friends. Don't forget. Uh, we've had many esteemed experts on the Newsbeat podcast and we uh, have hip-hop in our hearts. So as I've always said, the artists of today are just as important as the journalists uh, in their uh, in how their perspective. Uh, real quick, Rashad, you pointed out this tweet, Alex Vital. Oh, yeah. So Alex Vitale is, some, is a policing expert that we had on um, in a Newsweek podcast episode, but also the inaugural episode of This Week in Social Justice. And he tweeted out, if you're listening to the podcast, he tweeted, Chauvin was found guilty because he had to be to preserve the current system of policing, the department turned against him to save itself. And 
Yeah, mm. I largely I largely mm. agree with that because it's hard for me to, um, like, you know, see the see the police chief and see the sergeant. All these people get up there and talk about how Chauvin wasn't, you know, following um, protocol or 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 policy when this is something that happens in America right. all the time, um, right. including in Minneapolis. Obviously, you had uh, Philando Castile gunned down during a traffic stop. Um, yep. So these these institutions were largely protecting themselves because Derek Chauvin was an easy person to, you know, to just throw out to the wolves because what he did was so mm -hmm. reprehensible. Even at the beginning, you had conservative media right. um, hard to say that he, he shouldn't have done this, but yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I, you know, this is just one of those cases where it's just obviously it was clear as day, but there was still trepidation waiting for the, the ruling because, uh, you know, there's just been so much, so we much pain and suffering and injustice that people, just don't have trust in the system. And will this give them trust in the system? I don't know. I don't have trust in the system even after this ruling. I'm going to tell you why we should not still have trust in the system that this was uh, to, to this, to this point right now, way more of an aberration than the rule, right? There's way more of an exception than the rule. I want to point out a couple of our friends, again, hip hop artists that have uh, performed and been a part of the Newsbeat family. I took note of what they had to say. Rebel Diaz who pull no punches when it comes to revolutionary thinking, uh, reminded us, keep taking the streets, keep shutting ish down, keep protesting, keep agitating and speaking truth to power, keep reading, study the lessons from those that fought before, build with the youth and the OGs, keep organizing, organize, organize, organize. And Rebel Diaz knows a thing or two about organizing and leading uh, movements against uh, social injustice. So shouts to the Rebel Diaz family uh, for their two cents. It does remind us that this is nothing in the grand scheme of things, uh, that there is more work to be done. Uh, Silent Knight, who's in the room, uh, didn't tweet this. Uh, he retweeted it. Uh, Jazzy B. Moody, a, a journalist, uh, someone I know as well, uh, says, and this is a very real uh, way of looking at this whole thing. And I, again, I want to make sure that everyone's perspective is noted. Uh, this was a tweet. It's public. I'm sorry, but the last thing I want to do after hearing the police killed another 15-year-old black girl is rally for justice. A child was murdered and left for dead. I do not want to repost cute paintings of her or march in the street. This is not working. Jail is not justice. And that led me to the question of the day. Is this really justice? Uh, shouts to her. Uh, my man, uh, Nazir Abdullah, who some may know as Osiris Anthem, appeared on one of our episodes as well. I think we have a clip from him in a minute before we get to our esteemed guest. Shout out to the young sister who recorded and everyone who marched, got hurt, got arrested, got COVID, and really rode for the culture last summer. The only necessary outcome, meaning guilty verdicts. And uh, Osiris made the point that I made earlier that, but not for a video. This wouldn't have come to this. We don't know that. We can't, we're not Dr. Strange. We can't see all the possible, you know, end games. But when you look at mm -hmm. what the Minneapolis Police Department put out, and I know this has been on the news, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but remember what they put out as their official statement was that this was a medical incident during a routine, it would seem, uh, handcuffing, uh, 
Officers were able to able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. <laughs> caring officers, I put in the word caring, caring officers called for an ambulance. He was transported by ambulance where he died a short time later. Those caring officers, this was the official. If you look it up, look at the investigative update on critical, critical incident, Minneapolis Police Department. They lied. 100%. That's Absolutely. very similar to the what came out um, after Breonna Taylor was killed, too. A hundred percent. So Framed as sort of like a mundane police raid. Oh, you know, these things happen. Gosh, you know, heat of the moment. I'm waiting to see what happens with, you know, with Columbus, Ohio. Heat of the moment. The point is that when they're now they're releasing video, practically <laughs> yeah. at, you know, live streaming this now because they don't want to, you know, but understand that this police department put out the lie. So at what point we may get into this in a minute. At what point do you actually shut it all down and start from scratch? I don't know. Listen, this is Newsbeat this week in social justice. Uh, Thank you for your comments and your uh, perspectives. Everyone, please keep feeding the comment section. We'll come back to this at the end. I don't want to Keep our guest waiting. Uh, one, you want you want to jump into the headliner, guys? You want to do this? Real yeah, quick? sure. Um, uh, yeah, I just want to give some people perspective. Uh, Victoria Law, our guest, is is waiting to come on. This is a quick snippet from an episode that she was featured featured in about prison abolition, and um, we'll come back with Victoria on the other side. Let's, as they say, get it. Newsbeat podcast, little snippet to let you know how we do. This is convict music with no Acon contracts, breaking nuclear homes, A-bomb contact, punishment for crimes. I can't hate on all that, but I so-called criminals, they are all black and brown, arrested for cracking vials, packs allowed, and dragged forth and back to trial. And so we dealing with the tribulations. Swallow your pride inside for the cavity searches during the visitations. Anything's a crime when they want you in chains. Bling, bling. That's the sound of closing of the cage. I read 1984. In 2003, the same year I had my first run in with the D's. They say they take me in for truancy, but I was all sick. They were the ones that were out of class, truthfully. The school of hard knocks, you know the deal. Your life is just collateral when it comes to getting them quotas filled. The idea of prison abolition is that prisons cannot be reformed, they need to be eliminated. Like, you cannot reform a system that is working the way it has been intended to. So, if you think of Ideas around, say, police violence or other forms of state violence, you can either think, oh, the system is broken, and if we just do these things to change it and we can tinker with it, we can make it better and it won't do these things like kill black people or incarcerate 2.3 million people, many of whom are incarcerated because they did not have other opportunities in life. Abolition looks at the larger picture, which says this is a system that works as it is intended to. So if we think about mass incarceration, not simply as the war on drugs, but looking at it as a response to the various civil rights and liberation struggles that were happening in the United States in the 1960s and early 1970s, and thinking about it as a response to marginalized communities and to people who might become organizers and agitators before they had a chance to organize. Nixon said that we cannot have a society. Oh, just a snippet from the fantastic episode featuring the fantastic. Let us welcome 
our guest. <laughs> Gentlemen, take it away. Victoria, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for covering this, as always. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And we just want to let uh, viewers and listeners know that uh, Victoria is out with a new book called Prisons Make Us Safer. And, and there's quotes around that. And 20 Other mm -hmm. Myths About Mass Incarceration. Uh, so definitely check that out. We'll drop a link in the comment section wherever you're watching um, so you can buy the book. Um, Victoria, uh, before we get into... Um, what you're writing about in, in the book. I just wanted to ask you uh, sort of your um, reaction to the Derek Chauvin trial, his conviction, and the, the question that we've posed to our audience as well, um, that this was uh, justice for George Floyd. Well, I don't think it was justice for George Floyd. I mean, George Floyd is still dead. His family members cannot never, ever hold his hand, give him a hug, scold him for not doing his dishes, Whatever you know, people do with each other, this is just not something they get to do anymore. Do they feel some sort of closure? Perhaps. I don't want to speak for uh, his loved ones. Um, does this mean that police will stop killing Black people? No, because as this verdict was being read out, we saw that police in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed a 15-year-old uh, who had, you know, who needed their help, not their killing. So what we can see is that I agree with uh, what you stated in that tweet earlier from Alex Vital is that the system sacrificed one person so that it could perpetuate itself. Mm. What happened is that George uh, is that Derek Chauvin was found guilty. Some people may breathe a sigh of relief because at least there is some consequence for him as opposed to no consequence, but it doesn't mean that anybody else is going to not. Uh, it doesn't mean that police officers are going to stop killing black people, stop pulling them over for bogus reasons. It doesn't mean that uh, people will not be targeted by the system in all the various ways that the system targets people who are black, brown, immigrant, low income, or marginalized by any of the identities that are deemed, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls it, surplus or you know just not wanted in American society. Amen. Important, important insights. Um, in terms of your book, Victoria, why was it so important to tackle these these uh, misconceptions and specifically um, this this sort of grand myth that locking someone up is going to rehabilitate them? Well, we have a nation of 2.2 million people behind bars, and there is this myth that perpetuates that uh, we need prisons to keep us safer and that people who go to prison uh, somehow get the rehabilitation they need um, so that they can be safer to be around or society is safe from them. And that is not the case. And we see this over and over again. And so it was important for me to write a book that looked at and clearly dispelled popular myths of mass incarceration because now that we have more attention being paid, particularly in the wake of last summer's defund the police mobilizations and more people understanding that policing in prisons are not the answer, we need people to understand what these myths are, who they serve or who they benefit, and then what the actual realities are of what prison is, who is inside prisons, 
how people are pushed down pathways to prison, and then looking at uh, solutions to these that don't inadvertently make the prison system larger or stronger or simply take away the bricks and walls and the gates from here and build a separate facility here and say, well, it's not prison, it's treatment. It is home confinement. It is something else without tackling the root causes of poverty, racism, white supremacy, economic equality, uh, misogyny, patriarchy that we have at the root of many of these problems that society has built for itself. Yeah, and Victoria, I think one um, aspect of mass incarceration, mass incarceration that people may not be uh, too aware of is sort of the criminalization of mental illness and mm -hmm how that's fueled mass incarceration. So can you talk about uh, that component and how that sort of under undercuts the myth that prisons are the appropriate setting for, for people suffering from these um, illnesses? Yes, so there is this uh, myth of prisons and jails as purveyors of mental health treatment, which they are not. Uh, prisons and jails are places in which people are locked into cells, or in overcrowded dormitories, it is loud, it is chaotic. Mental health treatment, if it is provided at all, takes a backseat to uh, security concerns and punishment. So if mm -hmm. if somebody's if a mental health provider says, you know, we need to be able to see, you know, Vicky, Chris, John, and you know Floyd today uh, mm -hmm. for mental health you know, for their mental health treatment regimen, or we need to see them to be able to assess them, and something else in the prison happens, those poor people do not get seen by mental health uh, treatment staff. Furthermore, in jails and prisons, it is the officers, the correctional officers, or the guards who make the decision as to whether or not to bring somebody to either medical treatment or mental health treatment. So if somebody, say, is acting out when they are in jail or in prison, the guard might say, well, they're just malingering or they're acting out or they want attention or they're just being bad and respond to them with punishment. Uh, and they may not actually see a mental health provider at all. Um, there have been studies that show that at Rikers Island, for instance, New York's uh, large jail complex, which takes up an entire island, uh, when uh, black people and white people are acting out, white people are more likely to be sent to mental health uh, staff for treatment and black people are more likely to be punished by being put in solitary confinement for misbehaving. So we can see how this doesn't act as a mental health resource center. Um, and it also doesn't address people's root causes of why they might have mental health issues. Jails and prisons are not meant to be treatment centers. They're not meant to be hospitals. They're not meant to be clinics. They're meant to be places of punishment. And over time, they also become the catch-all for all of society's failings. Uh, society has, uh, by and large, American cities and jurisdictions have cut away at mental health services and provisions, um, and at the same time, cut away from all of the other social safety nets that we need in, uh, in society for people to be able to not fall through the cracks and to survive and thrive. And Victoria, now for the, for the book, you interviewed a hell of a lot of incarcerated people. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering, I'm wondering what was their first sort of response or the first couple when, when you asked them, what are, what are some of the biggest myths uh, that you're experiencing? 
I think a lot of them, um, you know, there was a, a varied number of responses because I think being in prison, they perhaps had different ideas of what myths were um, floating around, but they very much would weigh in when I asked them specifically about, uh, say, jails as purveyors of mental health care. And so being, as people who had been cycled through jails and prisons, none of them encountered or believed or thought that jails and prisons were purveyors of mental health care. But when I asked them about this, they said, definitely not. And they would expound at great length on what they had either seen or directly experienced. Um, and some of them were, I think, a little astonished about some of these myths. Like uh, if you are inside a jail or a prison, you know that it is not filled with just nonviolent drug offenders. And if you let them all out, uh, we will have solved the problem that is mass incarceration because they see again and again who they are in prisons with. And they say, actually, that's not true. You know, a lot of us are here for, you know, crimes involving violence. Or actually, that is not true that it is only Black men who are in prison because we are all here in a women's prison and we are all not Black men. Um, so again and again, I think that them living through their experiences debunked these myths for them. Some of them were surprised that some of these myths existed, like this idea of, um, you know, uh, the abuse excuse for many people in men's prisons did not realize that this, that uh, women's experiences of domestic violence would be dismissed as an excuse that they were using to try to justify their, their criminalized behavior or to avoid accountability for their actions. Uh, that was a surprise. And then many of them just, uh, like again and again, would just share their experiences that showed that uh, these myths were not true and then would elaborate on why and how. And I was wondering if you could talk about the people who are largely missing from the narrative when we're talking about um, policing and mass incarceration. And, and I, I think I'm mostly talk, referring to women um, and transgender people who are also disproportionately um, facing impacted by the criminal justice system. Can you talk about um, sort of the marginalized uh, people who, who we don't hear enough about? Yes. Um, so when we think about mass incarceration, and this has changed in recent years, largely due to uh, Orange is the New Black being a big Netflix show that makes prisons uh, more approachable to audiences that are not familiar with incarceration or might be scared of prisons and incarceration. But uh, women in prison make up about 10% more or less of uh, the U.S. Prison jail and prison population. And so often their needs and their issues are uh, sidelined or ignored or dismissed because they are not the issue that affects all 2.2 million people in prison. Um, the same goes with trans people in prison. And we don't have a sense as to how many trans people are behind bars or what their numbers are, what percentage they make up because jails and prisons don't track by and large how many trans people are in their system. A law was passed last year um, in California that mandates that the California prison system now has to ask people if they identify as trans or gender nonconforming and ask them where they, what kind of prison they feel safest in. It doesn't say, do you feel safe in prison? Because obviously that would be, the answer is no, but what prison they would feel safest to be housed in and they are supposed to take that into consideration. But that is a new law that passed after I submitted my manuscript because formerly and currently incarcerated trans women fought for that law. But in 
every other state, all 49 other states, plus every county that has a jail, they don't have to keep track of whether or not they have trans people or gender non-conforming people in their facilities. Um, and many of them feel might think that they do not. So while they might say, oh yes, we understand there are trans people in society and in prisons or in jails, many of them will say, no, there are no trans people in our jail, never have been. So they're even uh, less thought about. And when you don't think about some of these populations, then you're not thinking of solutions that actually work to either free them or at least to um, work for solutions that either free them or make their conditions better without causing a larger um, an enlargement of their incarceration. So for instance, if you know that there are women in prison, you might start thinking about pregnancy behind bars and something like five to 7% of women enter pregnant each year into jails and prisons. And so if you're not thinking about that, then you might not think about what does prison medical care look like? What does prenatal care look like? Why do we put giant shackles on women when they go into labor, when they're about to push a baby out? Because we think about prisons as being designed for men and probably large, quote unquote, scary men at that, not somebody who is nine months pregnant and about to pop a baby out. Horrific. Um, Victoria, you mentioned uh, Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. You know, and Rochette and I have talked this uh, talked about this uh, before in the past, and it's just like incredible how, when you think about it, it's, it's really how much entertainment industry and the media really shape the general public's perception of what it's like to be in a prison. You know, unless you know mm-hmm. someone who's incarcerated. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit uh, about that influence and um, why it's so problematic? I mean, we have been conditioned, you know, since we were small enough to be able, or large enough to be able to keep our focus on a television screen, that, you know, cops are the good guys, uh, you know, like they, they always get the bad guys. If they break some rules to do so, it's in society's best interest. Uh, prosecutors always get the guy that did the wrongdoing. Jails are for jails and prisons are for people who've done bad things. So, I mean, we see again and again and again this reinforcing of media narrative. And for the most part, many of these shows centered around men because you can make men be scarier, I suppose, um, with a few exceptions. I mean, you have the like uh, shows that focus on women who have killed someone and it's a very sensationalistic look and feeds into all of our uh, misogynistic fears of women. But uh, for the most part, what we see is the media again and again reinforces these narratives that people who end up in jails and prisons are scary people who deserve to be there, who deserve to be locked away, whom we should want to be locked away. Um, And we should not be thinking about what kinds of conditions they might be in or how we as a society uh, have these conditions that force some people into criminalized activity, that force some people into violent, chaotic situations and push people into violence. I mean, what we have to remember is that nobody's first encounter with violence is them perpetuating violence onto somebody else. It is usually they have had violence and harm done to them um, on many occasions before they start harming somebody else. And uh, this is the last thing uh, from us, Victoria. And we really, we really appreciate um, the time you've given us to to talk about these issues. Um, 
as someone who writes a lot about abolition concepts, can you uh, explain how the system that's currently constituted um, can't actually be reformed? It's something that we just previewed um, uh, in an interview we did with you a couple of years ago for prison abolition. Um, but can you just talk about those concepts and how um, sort of they intersect with police reform? Yes. I mean, what we see is the system will not reform itself, or it might reform in the very literal sense, where it's like, okay, we're now no longer a big box prison. Now we are going to be smaller, nicer prisons, or we are now no longer a uh, RoboCop police force. Now we're going to branch out and become a uh, neighborhood police or community police. I mean, we have to remember it was somebody hired under one of these community policing grants that killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice, um, who was playing with a toy gun in a park and was never held accountable for that. So we see the way in which the system perhaps reforms itself or reshapes itself as demands grow for it to stop killing people and stop being a death-making institution. Uh, but it won't actually stop doing what it was designed to do, which is to monitor, surveil, control, coerce and punish people um, who are deemed as undesirables or somehow surplus in our society. Wow. And so, Victoria, again, we just really appreciate you for coming on. And for everybody, again, who's listening and watching, um, pick up Victoria's new book, Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for covering all of these issues. We uh, we appreciate the work uh, you're doing, and we respect we respect you a lot. Thank you. Incredible stuff from uh, Victoria. Um, I don't know if it's me, but Manny, I can't hear you, but it could just be me. Yeah, no, I just I didn't want to mess up the vibe. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Sometimes it is me, so I just wanted to make I'm, sure. I muted myself because I didn't want to sneeze during that uh segment but uh shout out to victoria Lowe. we do have her book obviously uh prisons make us safe let me put up one more time prisons make us safer and 20 other myths about mass incarceration the inimitable victoria law breaking it down for us yeah oh. and yeah yeah i mean I, I just want to mention too again that 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 episode that we did with victoria um uh, is prison abolition possible? And, you know, in that episode, you know, we have experts that state it, it actually, that was a real conversation in the halls of power um, in the yeah. early seventies. And, you know, I think it was something like uh, 300 or 400,000 people. Uh, that was the prison population in 1968. And right. obviously the war on drugs and everything, but, but before the war on drugs and, and, you know, the changing of these policies and the, the Clinton, the Clinton era, um, it, that was a real conversation and it's just insane, yeah. you know, where we're at at this point. That, you know, so you, you basically that it was, it was something that was being taken seriously or it was being considered or it was something that where there could have been some kind of bipartisan, whatever, until they decided to absolutely erupt the criminal justice system uh, to pack as many bodies as possible. Private prisons started coming up and, and, and what was the, the, the conditions of private prisons that they had to remain 
ninety percent full. Right, it's all, all about these the bottom line. Ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, cap- and, and, capitalistic you know, aspects of of criminal justice. Yeah, I mean, and a, and a factoid that always is I find uh, so incredibly uh, haunting and damning. Um, I think it's something like, well, obviously there's two point three million people incarcerated or locked up every single day in America. America is the lar- the world's largest prison state, uh, despite only I think twenty percent of the global population, um, and there are more black and brown people behind bars today than there were enslaved prior to the civil war. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, it's any of those stats. And again, not to keep rehashing the negative horrific stats, but they're important uh, because they also lead to folks like Victoria law and who else was in this episode? uh, You know, these are people, and shouts again to Osiris Anthem, uh, making a very um, compelling case uh, for this issue. But Mariam Kaba, for example, who is doing incredible yeah. work uh, out there. There are people and organizations that are doing the work to correct these issues. It's not just about what we see on the news where it's at the sort of the culmination of a horrible uh, ser- Lemony Snicket's horrible series of events when the cop is on trial for killing someone and murdering them in cold blood on camera for all to see and you need you need only 10 hours of deliberation and and I would imagine 9 hours of that was just waiting for the sandwiches to arrive uh, but before you make a decision that was most obvious uh, Marianne Kaba, Victoria Law uh, they will point out or they'll be part of organizations that are doing the work so that we don't get to that crescendo of horror that are out there doing work. And I just think that's, I want to reiterate that. I want to say, I know it's hard to keep rehashing these issues, to keep keep putting out these stats, reminding people what happens at the end of the cycle when these are people who are doing the work, we are pointing them out. There's action you can do this. Donations you could make. There's volunteer, you know, organizations you could volunteer for that are fighting. Because prison abolition doesn't mean close all the prisons and let every prisoner out. That's not what it means. It, defund the police doesn't mean take all the money from the police department and just let them walk around with cardboard guns and rubber bands. It's not what it means. I don't want to filibuster. Yeah. Keep going. No, no. I, I, I just sort of to that point. Um, the some. I, I do want to sort of maybe just tie tie this up and, and say that it, it's sort of amazing that we had Victoria on for this episode, um, especially because we booked her before the verdict. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the myths that she's talking about, um, they lead to situations that we saw with George Floyd and so many other people, right? These these misconceptions about, you know, sort of uh, about violence and um, what's happening in these communities, they lead to these horrific things. And I think that's one, I think that's why it's so important to have her on. And also just another point, something that you were talking about just now, Manny, and and talking about organizations, right? So she started off the interview by talking about how prisons don't really rehabilitate people. And um, she's written about, and we've interviewed other people about the idea of restorative justice and how that sort of alternative to incarceration um, is perhaps more um, successful in and dealing with sort of the raw emotions and the raw um, things that 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 transpire after a crime is occurred uh, has occurred. So um, yeah, I, and I also just want to um, 
I can't say enough about Victoria, the work she does. So I really hope people follow um, her, her work. And I think we dropped uh, her Twitter handle in the comment section. So definitely check her out. We did amazing work. And you know what, Just not to di diverge too much, but the restorative, the, the concept of restorative justice. We did this episode a while ago. I remember we were traipsing around the city interviewing. Uh, uh, who did we interview for that? Uh, oh, uh, Danielle Serrett. Uh, I, I was not, I, I was as a regular ass person, right? I was like, this makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I didn't understand the depth and the nuance of restorative justice as a practice, what it meant, what it could be. And I just think about being younger and I got wrapped up in stuff and, and you guys might've got wrapped up in stuff. And I know so many people, uh, Van Jones was on CNN and I'm not, I'm not giving any praise or whatever to mainstream and blah, 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 but uh, you know, props were, were delivered. And he says, I have seen young men or young people. I don't think he even singled out men. I've seen young people go to jail for longer than Derek Chauvin probably will for, mm -hmm. for an infinite less offense. Selling drugs. Selling drugs. Getting into a fight and then it's your whatever, your, I don't, you know, sentencing and third strikes and all that, whatever it is. Restorative justice was an amazing concept to me. It really flipped my mind about that's where the defund the police, you take the money, you put it into the restorative justice. You're changing people's lives so that their first encounter, as unfortunate as it might be, as immature as it might be, their first encounter with the criminal justice system can be their last. Yeah. Yeah. And the people are reckoning with the damage and the harm that they've caused, which it's, it's um, doesn't happen inside jails or prisons. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a healing component there, obviously. Yes. And, and obviously we suggest everyone listening and watching check out, check out our episode but yeah it was extremely eye-opening and and it was it was multi-layered you know it wasn't you know you take someone and you throw them behind the bars and then what what happens okay they just you know they rot there there's no there's no healing involved right. you know um maybe there's some satisfaction of doing that on side. side i'm sorry I said for either side, for the person that yeah. committed an offense and for the yeah. person who, you know, was, go ahead. I just want to say for both sides. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it's a completely different way of, of dealing with this stuff. Yeah. I, I appreciate this. I, you know, as I said in the beginning and, and what we talked about before we came on and what we're always trying to do with, Hey, what, what's happening here? Uh, mm -hmm. what we're always trying to do with this week in social justice is, there, whatever you're hearing on the news is important. I, I, I'm not downplaying this at all. This was a monumental, for a lot of reasons, uh, verdict, uh, trial. I followed it. I'm into like the court stuff. I'm in like, you know, I like how lawyers do their lawyering. It's cool to me. I enjoy it. I like, you know, hearing all the nuances. I like hearing the, the real. I don't, you know, I love court drama, you know, like a movie or a TV show, but I like the real thing too, even though it's much more drawn out and boring sometimes. But it was important for a million reasons for people to pay attention to this. Uh, it was important for a million reasons that after George Floyd, if that was the only time, I won't say the only time, if that was the catalyst for you to realize that maybe some of the issues that people have been talking about uh, for years and years and years 
were actually true. Better late than never, but okay, let's let's go. You're engaged now. You're part of the fight. Let's go. So for a lot of these reasons, this was a super monumental thing that happened. But to the point of this show and what we do on Newsbeat Podcast and what we do on this week's social justice is to point out all the nuance of to how we get there and, and what can be done to chop these uh, trees. These I say chop trees is probably a bad ecological way of framing it, but uh, you know, to, to, to chop the weed at the root, you know what I mean? Yeah, you don't have to wait. Away. Right. You don't have to wait till it appears over top and you see the, the end result. Now I'm reiterating that. I know I've said it a couple of times tonight, but we're, we're providing that way. And if you don't listen to us and want to dig that deep, just go look. There's places you can get involved. There's organizations. We saw what happened in Georgia. Get involved. It does make a difference. This is not the end, but it's just the beginning. That's right. I'm done filibustering. I did a Chris filibuster. Let's uh, uh, no, take a you did a Manny filibuster. There are no Chris filibusters. All right. I'll take it. I'll own it. Maybe one. Uh, Maybe there was one. Only when fish is involved. There's Rashad filibusters and there's <laughs> many filibusters. What we also like to do on this show, thank you for everyone who's tuned in and turned up with us. Uh, leave your comments. Tell us if we're doing a good job. Tell us if you're doing a bad job. We'll ignore you, but you can tell us anyway. Uh, transparency and all that. Uh, let's do something that we sometimes don't get a chance to do while we have a few more minutes together. Uh, again, pointing out some of the things that you don't get to hear about because uh, very often we're drowned out by important but not singular issues. Let's go back in time, shall we? And news beat the... I am very, very excited about this news beating the past. And I wasn't sure if your screen was frozen there for a second there, man. It was an incredible pose. Uh, still haven't done the eye thing yet, but... It doesn't happen when you and ask. He's still not, and he's still not going to do it. But anyway. No, um, I'm not a trained, I'm I just, not a trained I, animal, I just, Chris. <laughs> I just uh, I wanted to use this to bring attention to Pedro Abiso Campos. Uh, who, who uh, had, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I can't say enough. Um, but basically, uh, you know, he was an attorney, an orator. Um, he was the leader of the Puerto Rican Independence Party. Uh for many, many years, he graduated at the top of his class in Harvard. He had the, the highest earned points. Um, and because of racism, they, they basically blocked him from giving uh, the speech and addressing his class. He could have gone anywhere. And in fact, I think I, I, think I read recently that he had offers from like even the, you know, the U.S. State Department and all this. And he went back to Puerto Rico and fought for its independence. Uh, and we did this incredible episode on Puerto Rico. There's so many things, uh, you, you know, we talk about uh, misconceptions uh, and myths, you yeah. know, take Puerto Rico uh, so much, uh, you know, so many people don't know. And um, it is, a, it is a colony. It's a, it's a modern day colony of the U S and, and, and he fought against that. He was jailed for more than 26 years. Today is the anniversary of his death slash murder. Because yeah. at the end of his life, 
incarcerated by the U.S. for calling out for independence against colonialism. Mm. He was in prison and he became horrifically ill, like horrifically. And the only way he sort of found comfort at that point was he would wrap these wet towels on his head. And he was convinced, and so were the other prisoners there, that he was being poisoned by radiation. Right. And the guards would mock him, you know, and call him the king of the towels and and this and that. And and he died. Um, And so it's just, I just find it's, anytime we can mention him, it's incredibly important. Anytime we can mention the ongoing struggle in Puerto Rico. And why I also want to mention it today is obviously there's, this is a big talk. The talk is always there, but it's it's being resurrected again. Uh, the talk of uh, D.C. statehood, the talk of Puerto Rican statehood. Um, over the years, there's been these these votes that really don't have any weight, and most of the people boycott it anyway. Um, but it's been resurrected, and this is sort of a hot topic now. And and you know, many of our guests on that episode would say no to statehood independence right right it's a nuanced oh. issue I think, again I, you know, I i gotta say i go back to before i know some things but when we dive deep into these uh episodes we learn all the things and uh if you really want to know it still it stands the test of time right now the truth about puerto rico a u.s colony newsbeat episode look it up y'all it's uh it's eye-opening uh compost is mentioned in that episode uh, the history, the past, present, and potential future of Puerto Rico and how we treat them with an amazing performance by uh, Inticana, a uh, supremely talented uh, hip-hop and uh, affiliated music artist. This is how we do on Newsbeat, and we teach you all these things so that, uh, how they say, if you don't know your past, you don't know your future, uh, you're bound to make the same mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we break down... Puerto Rico, we break down Martin Luther King, we break down Rosa Parks, the things you don't really get taught along the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's really uh, eye open. Yeah. And just and just real quick, one of the guests on that episode was Nelson Dennis. Uh, he's yep. an author. And so I just wanted we wanted to plug his book, War Against All Puerto Ricans. Uh it is it, it's, I, a must, a it's a must read. read. It's a must read. Yeah, yeah. Some it breaks down everything. This is where we were in his house. <laughs> and we interviewed this guy. And this guy, in like, I mean, we used like, you know, seven minutes, uh, you know, with the snippets and the interviews for the episode. This guy sat there for three hours with us and, and broke down everything, everything about Puerto Rico and the whole history of everything. In like three hours, soup to nuts, top to bottom, and we were. I was. I was riveted. I mean, and and you know, this is book. It's all in the book. Crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on and on here about Puerto Rico and, and the atrocities, okay. I, the atrocities that are still ongoing there, and and how we stole it and invaded it and destroyed it. Um, and it's uh, it's an American story, ain't it? As old as time. Oh, yes. Very, very nice. You're going to do the Disney thing now? <laughs> uh, do check all that out. Uh, man, uh, we do such great work. Uh, I'm so proud of us. 
Uh, let's real quick look into the future. Yeah, so we talked about solutions earlier, and I figured we send um, us out with this. And we mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, uh, streams ago, um, and it's a, a initiative led by a coalition of groups uh, in Minneapolis and also some national organizations as well. Um, to reform the police system, actually replace it with a community-led public safety department. And this petition is called Yes for Minneapolis, and they're collecting signatures. Uh, there's nothing you can do if you don't live in Minneapolis other than promote it and share it. Um, but to actually sign the petition, you have to be a resident. Um, and it will um, then, um, you know, it, it could then potentially change policing as we know it in Minneapolis if the petition is successful. So definitely check it out. I think it's yesforminneapolis.org, if I have yep, it right. Just, yep, just put it in there. Thanks for saying it out loud for the podcast listeners and for the watchers of watching. I put it in the comments section. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, It's basically, uh, for my future, I, I know we don't do this like news beats, but I did want to do this. I put up a picture of all four of the cops that were arrested for the killing of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin's pictures first, and there's a big check mark over it, just for context. Hmm. One down, three to go. Remember, these are accomplices to murder. I'll be convinced that there's some things happening when there's little check marks across everybody's face because you can only hold the one guy accountable, but so much. You could. You, I will also only be satisfied that some things are happening when that federal investigation actually does something. Uh, consent decrees. It's a whole thing. Look it up, right? Um, but if you're looking at the fact that the Minneapolis Police Department lied on their official statement, 100%, it blows my mind now to look back at it and to say that if you think for a minute this was the only time and it's the only police department and it's the only anything that ever did this kind of cover up kind of thing. Well, as, uh, as, uh, un-effing the Republic, uh, host says, I got a bridge to Terabithia. I can sell you. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. Anything else uh, for us, gentlemen? What a week in social justice. No, I think, uh, look, uh, I think we covered it as best as we could. We tried to um, get to the core of these horrific issues. Unfortunately, um, you uh, people are obviously uh, saturated with coverage of Chauvin trial and uh, <clears throat> and what happened to George Floyd. Um, we, uh, we also like to try to get at the heart of the issues. So hopefully we accomplish that for people who are watching and listening. If you're watching and listening, don't forget our, our uh, illustrious guest, Victoria Law, has a book called Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. You can find that wherever you find books. We do like to hi uh, highlight the bookshop.org site, by the way, just as a tidbit of, uh, of cool information, bookshop.org. I think we're going to set up a shop there so you can go to like the Newsbeat page there and find out a whole bunch of books that we recommend. But bookshop.org is an alternative to uh, Amazon. A lot of folks have issue with Amazon and et cetera, et cetera, but you want to buy books. But you know, COVID, stores, da da da. Bookshop.org highlights local, uh, small, independent booksellers. So if you want a book, go there first, see if someone has it, 
and buy it from a local or an independent bookstore before you decide to buy it from Amazon. Uh, I'm not telling you what to do, but if I was telling you what to do, that's what I would tell you what to do. There you go. All right. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday at 8 p.m. We'll be back next Wednesday earlier than 8 p.m. on our Instagram. We do a pregame show and we talk to people live. Uh, Join us at U.S. Newsbeat on Instagram uh, and you'll be able to participate in that. And then tomorrow or every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we will have a postgame report, as it were, on Clubhouse, on the Clubhouse app. So we're trying to be wherever the hell you are. We're going to be there. So wherever you are, we'll be there. If you're on Clubhouse, we're there. If you're on Instagram, you're there. If you're on Facebook, you're there. If you're in the park, we will come to the park. Just tell us what park, and we will come to the goddamn park, and we will talk to you in person about these uh, these topics. Uh, my name is Manny Faces. I am honored and privileged to be here with you tonight. Thank you to Rashad Mian. Say peace. Peace. And Christopher Tawarski, we do know where you are, Ski. Say goodnight to the people, sir. Good night, y'all. I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. I love everyone for watching and listening. We're out of here. Peace. Vice versus forever. <laughs>